You're listening to Vatican Radio. In this week's edition of Gospel Truth, the late Jill Bevilacqua and Sean Patrick Lovett bring us readings and reflections from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 through 30 of the 33rd Sunday in Ordinary Time. Jesus told this parable to his disciples. A man was going on a journey. He called in his servants and handed his funds over to them according to each man's abilities. To one he disbursed five thousand silver pieces, to a second two thousand, and a third a thousand. After a long absence, the master of those servants came home and settled accounts with them. The man who received the five thousand came forward, bringing the additional five. My lord, he said, You let me have five thousand. See, I have made five thousand more. Although the word doesn't appear in the version we've just heard, today's parable is commonly known as the parable of the talents. And it's not only the word used in most versions and most familiar to us, but it also has more significance, for it's what the parable is all about. To the English speaker of today, the word talent means what one modern dictionary defines it as, natural aptitude or skill. The second definition is given as a former weight and unit of currency used by the ancient Romans and Greeks. It's interesting to see, though, that another dictionary compiled at roughly the same time inverts the two meanings, giving precedence to the unit of weight and currency. And this, of course, is what our Lord's hearers would have understood. While originally the talent was a unit of weight for precious metals, gold and silver, it later represented the value of these metals and was used as a coin. At one time, its value was around 35 kilos of gold. The annual revenue of Herod the Great, we're told, was of 900 talents. Five talents, or 5,000 silver pieces then, was a considerable sum. And even 2,000 or two talents was not to be sneezed at. And so the first two servants invest the money, and each doubles the amount received in trust. The third, who received a thousand silver pieces, or one talent, digs a hole in the ground and buries the money. Coins and other valuables of gold and silver found in the ground are invariably described as treasure. And in 1635, the word talent was used figuratively for treasure or riches, while the stories of buried treasure are numberless and never seem to go out of fashion. Did it all come from our parable? Apparently not. It must have been a common custom, for another parable speaks of hidden treasure. Matthew again. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which someone has found. He hides it again, goes off happy, sells everything he owns, and buys the field. And a scholar of today makes this comment. Matthew seems to allude to the custom of the ancients of hiding their precious objects in the earth, placed with care in special containers when invading enemy armies approached. Once the danger was over, it was easy enough to come across these hiding places and so make one's fortune, having once bought the field from its owner. 
But what about those who bury money in the hopes that it will multiply? Carlo Collodi, in his celebrated story of Pinocchio, pointed the moral that money can only be earned honestly with the labour of hand or brain. The crafty fox and cat persuade Pinocchio to bury his four gold coins in the field of miracles. Water the ground, go away, and come back in twenty minutes, when he will find a little tree with its branches covered with money. And after counting the minutes, Pinocchio goes back, talking to himself of all the wonderful things he will buy with the money. I shall have a magnificent palace, and a thousand wooden ponies, and a thousand stables to play with, and a cellar full of lollies and cordials, and a, and a library brimful of candies and tarts and cakes and almond biscuits and cream puffs. While he was thus talking to himself, he came near the field and stopped to look if he could see a tree with branches laden with money. But he saw nothing. He went a little nearer. Still nothing. He entered the field, went to the spot where he'd buried his gold pieces, and still nothing at all. He stood there, pondering. And when the ghost of his conscience appears in the shape of a talking parrot and tells him that the fox and the cat have been back and dug up his money, Pinocchio is incredulous. Pinocchio stood there with his mouth open, and as he did not believe what the parrot said, he began to dig up the earth he had watered. He dug and dug and dug until he had a big hole, big enough for a haystack. But money... There was none. The moral of our parable today is a different one, of course, and the experts explain. We must always use and develop as much as possible the gifts that God has given us so that we may be ready to present them to him whenever he calls us. Failure to use God's gifts is considered a sin worthy of punishment. The exact meaning of the word used, be it funds, talents or gifts, is not easy to interpret. Was Jesus speaking of the gifts of mind and body? Or of what St Paul describes as the spiritual gifts? Our gifts differ according to the grace given us. Our scholars opt for the second. The reference to the Master returning after a long absence indicates the time in which we must know how to bring the divine gift to fruit. While we await the coming of the Lord at the end of time, it is indispensable that we be hard-working. The gift of divine grace must be made to produce good works. We have to be alert and committed to such an extent that the Lord may see, at his coming, that his generosity has been responded to by the generosity of man. In a similar parable recounted by St. Luke, the lesson we're told is the same, to bring to fruit the divine gift received. But let's look at our more earthly interpretation of that word talent, and hear what some of our writers have had to say on the subject. It was Conan Doyle, the inventor of Sherlock Holmes, no less, who made this surprising statement. Mediocrity knows nothing higher than itself, but talent instantly recognises genius. 
while a little-known poet, Owen Meredith, wrote rather cleverly, Genius does what it must, and talent does what it can. Swift, in his usual caustic style, commented that it's the talent of human nature to run from one extreme to another. And a few decades earlier, Dryden declared in a poetic prologue, but tis the talent of the English nation still to be plotting some new reformation. In the 19th century, a humorous poet called Prade wrote these lines. Of science and logic he chatters, as fine and as fast as he can, though I am no judge of such matters, I'm sure he's a talented man. In 1806, an ironical name was given to a coalition government formed by a certain Lord Grenville. But the Ministry of All the Talents, which we're told was an attempt at a broadly-based administration, consisted largely of the followers of the Foreign Secretary, Charles James Fox. But it achieved one great thing, which may be said to have redeemed its reputation, the abolition of the slave trade. If we must be hard-working in developing the spiritual gifts, surely the same attitude should apply to the temporal ones. As the portrait painter Sir Joshua Reynolds said in his discourse to students of the Royal Academy in the December of 1769. If you have great talents, industry will improve them. If you have but moderate abilities, industry will supply their deficiency. Reynolds was a contemporary and close friend of Dr. Samuel Johnson, the great conversationalist and compiler of a famous dictionary. James Boswell, who wrote his biography, quotes a curious verse written on the death of a dear friend of Johnson's. His virtues walked their narrow round, nor made a pause, nor left a void, and sure the eternal master found his single talent well employed. That Boswell was somewhat mystified at Johnson's affection for an undistinguished doctor of medicine is clear from his earliest reference to the man. His humble friend, Mr. Robert Levitt, an obscure practiser in physic amongst the lower people, his fees being sometimes very small sums, sometimes whatever provisions his patients could afford him. He was of a strange, grotesque appearance, stiff and formal in his manner, and seldom said a word while any company was present. Such was Johnson's predilection for him, and fanciful estimation of his moderate abilities, that I have heard him say he should not be satisfied though attended by all the College of Physicians, unless he had Mr. Levitt with him. Boswell may well have been puzzled, but perhaps the less perceptive eye of his talent missed what the sharper vision of Johnson's genius had recognised, that here was a man who had indeed put his one gift to full use, and to the service of others, indeed to our Lord's chosen ones, the poor. On a more down-to-earth level are the opening words of a song by Noel Coward, which ran, I believe that since my life began, the most I've had is just a talent to amuse. And that talent he exploited to the full, and to his autobiography gave the title, A Talent to Amuse. But when a talent is rendered unusable, what then? For John Milton, the loss of his sight seemed at first a veritable disaster. But being a reflective, religious man, he came to terms with it, as we hear in this sonnet, on his blindness.
When I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve therewith my maker, and present my true account, lest he returning chide, doth God exact day labour, light denied? I fondly ask. But patience, to prevent that murmur, soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts, who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingly, thousands at his bidding speed, and post o'er land and ocean without rest, they also serve who only stand and wait. The gift which it was death to hide was that of the writer, and despite his blindness, Milton continued to write. If he hadn't, there would have been no paradise lost, for his epic poem was dictated. Had he lived today, the marvels of medicine would have enabled him to see his work in print. But he was writing in the 17th century, and his contemporary Samuel Pepys suffered a similar fate. This is part of the last entry in his famous diary written in his own hand. May 31st, 1669. And thus ends all that I doubt I shall ever be able to do with my own eyes in the keeping of my journal. I being not able to do it any longer, having done now so long as to undo my eyes almost every time that I take a pen in my hand. And therefore, whatever comes of it, I must forbear. And therefore resolve from this time forward to have it kept by my people in longhand, and must be contented to set down no more than is fit for them and all the world to know. Or if there be anything, I must endeavour to keep a margin in my book open, to add here and there a note in shorthand with my own hand. I wonder what kind of shorthand Pepys used. Not only blindness, but deafness too has taken its victims witness Beethoven, and yet he continued to compose, giving the world his Ninth Symphony and other works. And if men of genius have struggled to the end with these handicaps, to use their gifts to the full, what more need we say? The last word belongs, surely, to the Apostles. Paul wrote to both the Romans and the Corinthians on the subject of the gifts received. To the Romans he said, In the light of the grace I have received, I want to urge each one among you not to exaggerate his real importance. Each of you must judge himself soberly by the standard of the faith. God has given him, just as each of our bodies has several parts and each part has a separate function, so all of us, in union with Christ, form one body, and as parts of it we belong to each other. Our gifts differ according to the grace given us. If your gift is prophecy, then use it as your faith suggests. If administration, then use it for administration. If teaching, then use it for teaching. Let the preachers deliver sermons, the almsgivers give freely, the officials be diligent, and those who do works of mercy do them cheerfully.
To the Corinthians, Paul wrote of the variety and unity of gifts. There's a variety of gifts, but always the same spirit. There are all sorts of service to be done, but always to the same Lord. Working in all sorts of different ways, in different people, it is the same God who is working in all of them. The particular way in which the Spirit is given to each person is for a good purpose. One may have the gift of preaching with wisdom, given him by the Spirit. Another may have the gift of preaching instruction, given him by the same Spirit. And another the gift of faith, given by the same Spirit. Another a gift of healing through this one Spirit. One the power of miracles, another prophecy, another the gift of recognizing spirits, another the gift of tongues, and another the ability to interpret them. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, who distributes different gifts to different people, just as he chooses. And we cannot do better than to close with these words of St. Peter in his first letter to Christian churches. Each one of you has received a special grace. So, like good stewards responsible for all these different graces of God, put yourselves at the service of others. If you are a speaker, speak in words which seem to come from God. If you are a helper, help as though every action was done at God's orders, so that in everything God may receive the glory through Jesus Christ, since to him alone belong all glory and power forever and ever. Amen.